Welcome to Designers of Paradise, a podcast focused on people who are changing the ways in which we produce our food, care for our soil and water, and protect our climate. There's a steady flow of information now about the many ways in which agriculture is damaging our planet, disrupting natural ecosystems, polluting our air and water, and destroying the soil it depends on. But there's another set of stories to be told as well. These are the stories of the people dedicating their time and brilliance to reversing the impacts of our industrial food systems. From farmers and consumers to innovators and entrepreneurs, city planners and funders, an entire ecosystem of change makers is on the rise. Together, they're bringing in a next generation of agriculture, which is regenerating soils, food quality, local economies, and significantly, hope. Hope for a better, healthier, and more equitable future for all. These are the designers of paradise. These are people who see paradise as the natural condition of a world in balance, where our collective activity feeds the land and consciously works with nature to rebuild the abundance that supports all life, including our own. I'm your host, Eric Van Lennep. Designers of Paradise is produced by RASA, the Regenerative Agriculture Sector Accelerator. Please subscribe for Designers of Paradise at iTunes, Overcast, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. So good morning. I'm speaking this morning with Madi Ackermans from a really interesting ecological engineering company in Den Bosch in the Netherlands, which is called The Weathermakers. And uh, one of the reasons I'm so excited about this morning's interview is that, you know, from time to time in the series, I've talked about uh, scale. How do we reach scale with regeneration? And we've talked about a, a bit also some elements that are kind of implied in that, in that search for scale, starting with any, anything from the sort of a neighborhood or community-sized garden right up to uh, river basin uh, recovery projects, which might, for some people, sit more comfortably or more familiarly under the label of ecosystem restoration. But uh, as far as I'm concerned, this is part of the larger regeneration picture. Um, and given that the Weathermakers is focused on bringing engineering um, into this whole, this whole framework, I think it's absolute perfect day for this. So welcome, Madi, and thank you for joining us. I'm happy to be here. Um, give, give, us, give us kind of a, a broad overview of this idea of where impacting weather actually comes into engineering or where engineering can come into uh, impact on, on that scale of things, implied by the name, but understanding also the name was taken from a a pretty uh, inspi inspirational work by Tim Flannery in his publication. Uh, the name The Weathermakers comes from his publication about The Weathermakers. Yes, that's correct. Um, the reason, well, we're holistic engineers. So um, if you look at engineering um, and then big scale, most of the time people talk about geoengineering and that's, that's, that's a scary name. So let's be very clear, we're holistic engineers. So that means that um, in the current world, you see scientists go into detail a lot. And what we see is if you talk about weather, if you talk about climate, that you need to scale out to actually see, have a better viewing point. So we're, we're scaling out a lot and um, looking at watershed-wide ecosystem regeneration. So what we actually do is we're looking at the climate and at the weather um, more as climate is always changing. So uh, um, we are looking more at it as we are warming up the earth at a very quick uh, pattern. And uh, that's something that we really need to look at. And it's something that is having a, an effect on the way that we live today that uh, um, uh, will be more enormous than most of us, I think, realize. Um, and what we're saying is, you can reforest the whole world or try to reforest the whole world, but you see if you do it on spots where there's not enough water available, uh, then probably the, the trees are going to have a, a difficult time to actually root themselves uh, and do what they need to do. Uh, so what we're saying is look at the strategic locations in the world um, where there's a broken system 
uh, you have watershed systems in the world that are related to each other and you have neighboring systems and mostly you can say that one system can be very large and it will go from an ocean shore till a mountain uh, top uh, 2000 meters high which will divide two systems uh, because the the the, water, the the air needs to go up those 200 2000 meters and it will cool down and it will form rain if there's enough moist in the air available. And I think that critical mass that is needed to create rain is many times not, um, uh, not there. Um, so the systems are broken. And in that way, there is a, a disbalance in the water availability in the world. So some watersheds like the Indian Ocean will have too much moist. So you will have floodings, you will have cyclones and typhoons, a lot of bad weather systems. And on the other hand, you will uh, have a watershed left with drought and uh, forest fires and uh, deforestation and, and uh, just by natural, because there's not enough moist anymore to keep the ecological system alive. Um, so you will have um, desert desertification actually. So that, that disbalance between two watersheds, that's what we try to uh, mend. So we look for strategic locations in the world where we can do a watershed-wide ecosystem regeneration, which will then create a rebalance of moist and then will make available moisture for a larger location to actually do more reforestation or regreening works. Reforestation is not a word that I really like because it's not only forest, it's also water, uh, it's also uh, wetlands and, and, and shrubs and, uh, you know, you have all these diff different systems, ecological systems, and you know that better than me because I'm definitely not um, a bio biologist or ecologist. Well, there's something I think that's really interesting about, about the approach that the Weathermakers has taken is that uh, when, when I look through the, the list of, of people who are working on this, either as, as staff or as advisors, it's very heavy on the engineering. And I think for the, you know, for the general public, we tend to think of engineers as being very, very focused on quite specific uh, projects, almost the opposite of regional, mm -hmm. right? Or bioregional. And here a group with, with an engineering uh, set of skills and, and, and the way that engineering teaches you to look at systems and, and to look at the world. Um, has taken on, uh, you know, almost as wide as possible. Uh, uh, and at the same time, practical, because when we go into policy and advocacy and these sorts of things that I think attract people who are really alarmed about the state of uh, the state of the world, uh, climate and, and its weather systems and availability of water impacts on biodiversity, etc. Um, it, it's at a scale which is too large to actually comprehend how to engage with that in a constructive and a restorative kind of way. So you have to scale down from planet, understanding that all these things do mesh together and create a, a more stable uh, condition for life on the planet, or maybe depending on, on your perspective on this, it may be actually enable the living of the planet itself. But it has to be done on a on a level which is a bit more local in order to, to actually be able to have that kind of direct impact. Um, impact on planning and strategy as well as the kind of technical or, or um, constructive impact. So I think that's a very interesting balance there. I think we, um, and I'm not an engineer, so that's, you know, that's my role is the managing party and I have more an economical background, but what I see that the engineers do is they make it on one hand more simple because um, if you actually look at how we look at how a, a system works, a, a watershed system works, you, you, you are being taught that in the first grade of school. It's, it's, it's like, you know, that's not higher science. And we all know how it works. You know, you receive moist from the ocean, 
you receive more moist from transpiration of, of, of everything living. I mean, we live ourselves as well. We transpirate, so we put moisture in the air there as well. And if you then have a critical mass and, and the air moves up uh, to the mountaintop, it gets heavy, it implodes, and it became, becomes rain and it moves back. So it's like a circular uh, system. So that's not higher science. That's like the simple knowledge that we all have, like how does the system work? But because we have been engineering more and more and more, we're making it more and more complex. So we're losing like the, the basic knowledge. And we go back on one hand to that basic knowledge. So, so we make it really simple. And then we are, because we're engineers, we're willing to calculate on it on a big scale. And then we look at the world and see where the critical locations are. And, and we we move forward on that. And because, um, because what we're saying is touching such basic knowledge of, of how the natural system works, we receive so many um, wonderful people that are assisting us with their knowledge and their science and their lifelong works. So, and if you combine all that, so you combine so many specialists on so many levels, and you, you put it in a natural system, then everything comes together. So um, it's not that difficult what we do, but because we keep it fully natural. So we always, if we're looking at something, we're saying, okay, can we make it bigger? And can we make it really small? If that's possible, it's a natural system. If it's not possible, let it go. It's not, it's not for us to, to do anything with it. So, and if you, if you work from a natural system, natural system is the most complex thing that we have on earth, but we don't have to understand each part of that system to work with it. And because we are keeping this as our red line, all the knowledge of all the scientists can actually add to it. And it, there won't be a discussion. There won't be a, a misfit because it's a natural system. Um, I'd like I'd like to actually come back to something you just mentioned. Uh, thanks for that explanation. Um, but you you mentioned the specialists that you work with, right? And I, I note on the website on uh, or the the, ver the different versions of of the, the website and the calls to action and and, and that sort of thing that the, the company has put out there, that fairly regularly you have a very simple uh, invitation in there. Um, which is like, we'd love to work with you. You know, if this is an area of your expertise and interest, please contact us. Could, can you say a little bit more about that strategy in terms of engaging uh, areas of special, um, special capacity, maybe? Well, I think part of what we want to do is accelerate. Um, so we want to accelerate watershed-wide ecosystem regeneration. So that means that we don't have, our strategy is based on getting this out there, making it an industry, making it as, as big as it can get because it's needed. So that means that we don't have any protectionism in ourselves because uh, what we're saying is a natural system. So you don't have to, you know, you, you don't protect it. There's, there's no use in putting an IP on this because you're talking about a natural system. So you're talking about there's so much work out there. There's enough work for all of us. And um, how we see it is if we can show the world that we can make money with this, um, then we can show the world to, to, to join us. So it's leading by example. Um, so everybody is welcome to actually add to what we're saying, but to make this an industry, I mean, we don't ambition to be a really big, huge company. So we'll need a lot of fine specialists that will be able to grow with this and, and, uh, and grow their expertise and grow their companies and grow their foundations or uh, organizations or in whichever entity they want to do it um, to make this possible. And we, we, we identify which part we want to do in that uh, and are clearly specialized in that and building on that. So, you know, it needs to be movement. And to do that, you need to share. I have almost a random question. Um, given the, the historical position of the Netherlands in terms of managing water, in terms of uh, you know, quite, quite large scale uh, successful engineering projects globally, um, in terms of actually creation of land, 
um, and which implies management of soil. Do you think it's inevitable that this project would have launched itself in the Netherlands? Well, I think it's, uh, I don't find it strange. It comes from the Netherlands. Um, and I do think that we have a fine uh, uh, scale of, you know, or how you say, a fine palette of institutes that can assist this. Um, but to be honest, it also started in Belgium. Actually, that is also a very interesting combination because if you work international, um, then you start to understand that some some cultures are very easy to talk to and some are a bit more difficult. And to be honest, the Dutch and the Belgians, we talk the same language, but I think sometimes it's the most difficult to communicate with because we, we, we still see things very differently. And then again, we look at the natural system and then you say the more biodiverse a system is, the more robust. I think the combination of those two countries will be very, um, uh, well, successful for what we're trying to do. Yeah, I hope so. I mean, it, it, it seems like there's a lot of the, the important and necessary elements already in place and that you've got a structure to attract the rest. Um, you, had, you, you mentioned also about the importance of demonstrating that this has an economic viability. And of course, we can we can look at economics from a, a few different levels and angles, right? Uh, I think the one you were talking about was that, you know, a business case can be made for the activity, but then there's of course also the economic impact on the region, which is which is being assisted in its regeneration and all the spin-off on local industries and job creation and that sort of thing. And you also mentioned that you came into this from economics rather than engineering. So I'm, I'm actually curious, as someone with an economic perspective, what drew you in to this project? Well, I think what drew me in was the project itself. Um, I mean, the vision is, is, is fantastic and who doesn't? want to work with such a beautiful um, uh, goal in mind. I think that's something that we miss in the current society anyways. Many companies work quarterly uh, towards profits um, and more growth and more growth. And um, I think it's, uh, it's inevitable to, for me at least, that we're like in a monopoly game that, you know, there will be a moment that there's a limit to growth. Um, and it, it seems to me that, look at that yet. Um, um, so for me, this is, this is a vision that shows that if you work with nature, their abundance can be part of your community. And in that way, part of your economics. Uh, it also shows a big um, lack at this moment in our, in our system. Um, because most of the time we do not value in the monetary value, we do not value eco ecosystem function. Uh, we do look at services a lot. I have a difficulty with that because that's again taking the production from something and then making it economical. Uh, I don't think it's it's bad to use the abundance of nature to 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 share and 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 have an economical value. But I think it's the, 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 the function of the ecosystem that should be part of our system. And I think this vision is big enough and has a, a, a huge enough positive feedback loop uh, on the systems surrounding it. So you're talking about full Mediterranean basin, you're talking about the Indian Ocean, but also, you know, on, on social values, uh, um, um, you know, people relocating, um, um, giving people the possibility to live actually where they are and 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 take care of themselves i think that should be the everybody wants to have a goal and be able to take care of themselves and so that's also one of the reasons that we are a company and not that much a foundation although we will put the, the story into a foundation because it's needed in the system that you're working in so to take it back you need to work with the system that we're already in and make it work and then it could create a change. Um, and we, we do need a change, all of us. And um, so it's on so many levels that this vision could enable that. For, so why did I join? Um, uh, for me, it's because the vision has so many angles 
to actually move all of us more to a system that would be sustainable and circular and then a very different circular than it's currently used in our society because circular would actually mean that we are in balance with our living earth and that should be the goal. So for people who are listening, um, I actually have an advantage over you guys in that I've, I'm, I've got the video going on on this as well, just for the conversation. And Madi, what I can see behind you is this map of the Sinai Peninsula in Egypt. And the, some of the references you've been making, you know, in the last few minutes actually are, are much more location specific. And that's exactly where we want to be in this conversation. So... Um, perhaps you could describe a little bit about the project that you, uh, Weathermakers has, has launched for the Sinai Peninsula. Um, and we can use that then to anchor more of this conversation in specifics around things such as local economic impact. Um, uh, you, you'd mentioned you know, a location which, which was very important in terms of the impacts on the Indian Ocean weather systems and the, and the systems on it and the impacts on the Mediterranean and by, by, um, by extension, we would imagine a good part of continental Europe. But uh, let's, let's actually come down to the ground um, in, in the conversation and, and localize it to this project um, so that the listeners can understand more of the specifics. Um, the vision that um, came to us is that if you look at the Sinai Peninsula, um, it's actually on the location between two large watersheds. And then we're talking about the Mediterranean watershed and the Indian Ocean watershed. And as I mentioned before, a watershed uh, is, is a location which is um, uh, divided from another location by a mountain uh, a mountain top, how do you say it, a mountain range of 2,000 meter high on average. Um, so high enough to create a border towards two weather systems that can be um, autonomous by itself mm -hmm. and in extremes have uh, a sharing system. Um, if you look at the Mediterranean and the Indian Ocean, they are linked to each other. There's, they have a, an equal border, and that border runs over the Sinai Peninsula, and then mainly that, uh, that mountain range there, which has a very special place also in human history and within all, actually all our religious um, uh, backing, so like the Old Testament, but also... Uh, the Islam, they all talk about that location. And if you look at that location with the current technologies, so you make an X-ray of it and you, you fly over it via Google Earth, uh, then you actually see the old riverbeds. So you see the, the peninsula looks actually like a lung or, or a heart with all these veins in it. And those veins are old river systems. So there's, there is, there's, there's a certainty that there has been life on this desert land that we these days know. Um, and with the current uh, ability to, to move earth, for instance, by the dredging companies, um, there is no reason that we couldn't make this part of the world green again. And then you look at if you would make this part of the world green, what would the effect be? you would actually create, it's, it's the watershed itself is like as big as the Netherlands. And I maybe some people don't know how small the Netherlands are, but it's not that big. It's, it, it, it's, it's obtainable. You can actually envision doing this. And if you don't look at the mountain range of the Sinai, it's, it's, it's like a square. So it comes into a point where it goes high up and you have two water streams on the side. You have the Aqaba and you have the, the Suez Canal. So you have all these water lines that create an extra charge of a vacuum breeze that creates at this moment a lot of sucking of moist out of the Mediterranean into the Indian Ocean. And we all know that there's a disbalance between the Indian Ocean and the Mediterranean, Mediterranean being very drought, droughty and the uh, Indian Ocean being very wet. Um, what we're saying is that if you would restore and regenerate, we like the word regenerate more, 
this watershed, this smaller watershed of the Sinai, uh, then you would stop sucking all that moist out of the system of the Mediterranean into the Indian Ocean. Plus you would enable moments of weather coming from the Indian Ocean with moist air to be cut into two by the uh, uh, Mount, uh, Mount Catherine and actually being pulled into the Suez and creating moist and put, pulled into the Middle East um, and also towards the southern parts of Europe. And if you have moist available, if you have water available, I mean, we all know water has multiple ways of looking at it. I mean, water can be uh, frightening, but it can also be very cleansing and it is life-giving. So if you would put more moist and water into the Mediterranean, it would definitely be life-giving. And if you take it out of the Indian Ocean, you take away a lot of threat. So you would rebalance two systems to both have many positive feedback loops for local possibilities. We're going to take a break now. So stay tuned, we'll be right back. Designers of Paradise is made possible in part by Mind and Media. Over the last quarter century, the writers, producers, storytellers, and media specialists at Mind and Media have spearheaded a multitude of engaging and complex communication campaigns. Mind and Media is a proud supporter of the work being done by the wonderful and passionate people of Rasa, who are engaged in the creation of a regenerative future for generations to come. Find out more about Mind and Media at mindandmedia.com. That's M-I-N-D-A-N-D-M-E-D-I-A.com. And now, back to Designers of Paradise and host Eric Van Lennon. Welcome back to Designers of Paradise, where I am speaking today with Madi Ackerman from the Weathermakers in the Netherlands. We've been having a really exciting conversation, at least for me, but I think for you too, about regeneration at scale, at global scale, and some projects that the Weathermakers are working on to regreen the entire Sinai Peninsula in Egypt. Let's get right back into that. It's interesting that, that the Sinai Peninsula, um, and, and for those who haven't gotten that yet from the, from the explanation, it, it is that it's that kind of wedge shape. It looks almost like a guitar pick um, that, that sits between Egypt and Israel, but, but it not only unites the Mediterranean and the, the Indian Ocean, but it unites Africa, um, Western Asia, and Europe. So it's, it's incredibly uh, pivotal, almost like the keystone in an arch uh, in terms of those three continents and their relationship to one another. Um, you mentioned at the, at the beginning of the, of the description about um, dredging and the ability to use technology now to move, to move Earth. And again, you know, for those who aren't um, you know, as focused as you and I might be on this, on this process, um, a, a large part of the story of the ecological destruction and the actual fall of civilizations through time from the, uh, what we would call the Mideast, you know, from our Western perspective, to Northern Africa, to the Mediterranean and Europe as well, has been linked very closely to the loss of the forests, the loss of the rainfall as a result of that, but also the erosion, which has dumped most of the really useful soil, including all of its biology for being able to, re to, to kind of hold rain and, and recycle that. Um, all of that topsoil has over a few thousand years ended up mostly beneath the sea through erosion. So when you start talking about dredging, then I think what people um, might want to picture is how that soil, which was originally, you know, the fertility of the land and the fertility of the hillsides and the mountains in that watershed ended up washing down and is now beneath the sea, where current uh, technology and engineering enable us to actually get it but up onto the land where it can, it can perform its its more important function. Did I get that right? Thank you for that, yes. I see the thumb up. Um, so let's, let's have a look then at some of the implications for this in terms of 
Well, you know, for, for looking at that satellite image, and I would encourage everybody listening to this to spend some time either right now or afterwards, go onto Google Earth, zoom down onto the Sinai Peninsula, have a look at that. Um, and you will see this braided river system or, you know, which, which is dry now. Uh, and mostly the, the largest part appears to start in the mountains and head south towards the Indian Ocean. It reminds me of some of the images of Mars, you know, where, where um, astrophysicists and, and uh, other, other different scientists looking at it are saying, well, there was, there was moving water on this planet at one point, uh, and it's now a desert. And, and it reminds me of some of those images where obviously there was a lot of water moving through that system. These are large um, and, and intricate river systems that we see the, the footprint of in, in what is now the desert on the Sinai Peninsula. Um, so if some of that moisture were to be able to be returned to that system, how might that impact uh, people's ability to thrive again? Well, I think we should start with one, one very simple thought first. Um, and for me, as not being an engineer, it was like a, a, there was like a quarter that fell. Like, okay, this is logic. Um, there is one certain amount of water on earth and it does not change so it changes maybe if it's in which format it is is it ice is it water is it damp you know that can change but, but it's the, finite yeah the, the volume of the water body is it's a standard it's it's there that's it that's what we that's what we need to work with and I think what we need to realize is that water is part of every living system. So, you know, two-thirds of our body is made of, out of water, but also two-thirds of a tree is made out of water or any living animal or shrub or, you know, whatever. And if you look at the system of creating rain, I'm going very, this is, this is like, you know, ballpark figures. Eh? So please don't pinpoint me on the exacts. But you can say that two-thirds of the water is, is evaporated from the ocean. And then one-third you need from your living Earth system to combine with it. And then you have the critical mass to create rain when you come by that mountaintop of 2,000 meters high. So if there's no life on the land system that we're working with there won't be any transpiration so you won't receive any rain but there's still two-thirds of water in there because you you had it as a given from the ocean and that will go over your mountaintop range into a different shed into a different watershed and will disturb the the, the balanced system that life would bring if we would let life actually thrive so I, I do think, you know, we're all talking about the end of the earth and blah, blah, blah. The earth is fine, you know. We're in, we have a difficult position within it. And, you know, so we're talking more about our own place in this system. And the earth will, will recover when we stop interfering this much. Um, but if you look at that constant amount of water, and then you talk about the rise of the oceans, I think the rise is more than they're taught telling us so but then you know panic would come um, if you just look at the old stories for instance in the bible the old testament and the stories about the world being flooded with water and everywhere there's there's water everywhere there is enough water in the world to actually do that but then you need to drain all the the land systems so there's a lot of water in our underflow, in our groundwater, in the, in the aquifers. It's like uh, there's all like rivers of water going beneath our earth and uh, or our topsoil. Um, we're draining that and we're using that to, to create crops and to feed ourselves and to create, um, create, you know, us being able to live. But we're taking it out of the essential systems, putting it in the air, and then it flows down towards our oceans. It becomes saline. And it's out of our, our living Earth system. So if you drain your whole system, I mean, and we're very good at that in the Netherlands. I mean, we created land just by draining it from water and then, you know, making crops on it. Yeah, so, yeah, that was the original windmills. Yeah, I mean, if you look at Netherlands, yeah. 
say, okay, the, what, what would be the actual nat natural system of the Netherlands if you would take out the dikes and don't drain your lands and whatever. I mean, there's not that much to live on anymore. But um, I think that we need to understand that if we don't make water being part of our land system, then there is too much water out of the system that can drain us or overflow us. Um, so there's a combination of sea level rise, but there's also the moisture held in typhoons and hurricanes, for instance, uh, which you know making making them more into superstorms because they've not only got more heat, but they've got more moisture available. You've got more extremes. I mean, you're yeah. now we're going into a part that I shouldn't talk too much about because I'm not a specialist. Uh, but you have extremes. I mean, you have extreme cold fronts, extreme warm fronts, um, you know, and if they collapse or collide, then, then you know, you get storms. But, on, and on the other hand, parts of the world that used to have many summer storms now have none. You know, it's like, it's like sunshine every time. We talk, another thing that, that strikes me as, as very interesting in terms of the location of this project is the implications that it could have for peace building. Mm -hmm. um, because it's, it's in a, that sort of, it, it's a territory which has historically been contested. As you say, it's, it's, it's very well known to the three Abrahamic religions in the world, which, you know, I mean, maybe, maybe it didn't have much impact on Confucianism, uh, you know, or, or Buddhism, but, but it certainly is, is central to the stories behind Islam and Judaism and Christianity. And so, you know, in, in you know, a few billion people's mindsets, uh, you know, this is significant territory, but also because it sits between Egypt and Israel and there were wars have been fought over, you know, over, over, over that region for thousands of years, that the ability to create a more stable economic situation because of restabilizing the climatic, uh, and specifically, you know, the availability of rain, I think that has that has huge implications in terms of peace building. Also, because in order to successfully address that, it would kind of require both of those those states, those nation states, to, to find some way to collaborate quite constructively and specifically on that location. And when we start to look at peace building, and we start to look at uh, peace also in its larger context in terms of peace between humanity and the planet that that, that gives life to us then we can start to think about how do projects of this scale and with this intended delivery of, of a kind of a recovery of, of healthy ecosystem function impact things like migration, which clearly in terms of especially Europe, but also, you know, we're feeling it in North America and, and, and we're feeling it in some other regions as well. The, the influx of people who are essentially in one way or another uh, climate collapse refugees, it may show up as an economic refugee on paper. It may show up as that on terms of sort of the first look at what's going on. But if you, but if you consider that among the three to five most traumatic experiences a person can have in their life, leaving home and family for an unknown area is among them. It really puts into question why millions of people would you know, supposedly choose to leave the area that their family had been in for generations to go to another area where they, they actually know they're not gonna be welcome. And so this, this, this comes back to the desperation faced by people who have no way to make a living or to even eat from their land and how that whole thing could be reversed through, through projects of, of uh, recovery of the moisture cycles, recovery of the productivity of the land. And I think that's really interesting as, as an additional angle um, because these are things which I think in normal conversation, normal politics, we tend to set aside somehow in a different conceptual territory. You know, we put them in their own silo. And that's, that's for the peace and justice people to talk about, right? This is, for the, this is for the United Nations, you know, migration people to talk about. And, and it doesn't cross over into sort of the ecological repair conversation often enough. And of course, it's all connected. Well, I think, you know, uh, 
we can make this as big as we as we want to do in conversation, but to make it possible to actually co-develop on it, we need to be able to imagine it all. And then it really helps to bring it back to the water question, because I think it's all related to water. If you don't have clean water, you are threatened. If you have too much water flushing you or overbearing you, you are threatened. So water can be very threatening. And by having it in a disbalanced form in the world, it threatens a lot of people or by drought or by flooding. And I think, you know, in the Western world, we still tend to feel uh, safe. And I do think that we are being distracted as well by a lot of technologies to, to stay very calm and at ease and, oh, we are having such fun. Uh, but we're also part of this and we also will be flushed one day with too much water if we if we don't act um so by by making it a water question it's something that you know it's it's part of our daily life um it's um, um it's something that we use use each day and which we can really easily imagine what if the tap water would run out. What, what would that imply for my own life and for my own situation? And I think, you know, there are a lot of reasons for people to be at war with each other, but I think it all comes down with, am I safe and can I take care of myself, my own and my, my own surroundings? So can I take care of my kids? my husband, my, my direct family, my friends, are we safe? And if we're safe, we are, we are willing to share with others and otherwise we are not. And then we start to fight for, for, for our own coexistence. Um, so what we do is we bring it back to water. We say, okay, there is a disbalance there. We can, we can change that. And if we change that, that would have all these positive feedback loops and you can make it as big as I want world peace. But um, to co-develop this, I think we need to make it small enough for people to understand, hey, I would receive instead of one huge rainfall, I would instead of that receive like five summer storms with rain and what would that implicate for my ability to take care of my own uh, by creating permaculture or agriculture or, you know, um, um, or, or, or water basins that I can go to and get water from? Um, and that's the drought part. That's, that's, the, that's the desert part. Uh, what would it imply? But also, if you take it to the Indian Ocean, what if my land wouldn't be overflown with water once or twice a year, so everything is being flushed out, eroded, uh, you know, I'm gonna go bankrupt with my small farming uh, situation, or, you know, uh, as, as, as an entrepreneur in any other sense, but it would be more stable and I could actually build on something, you know, what would that imply? So let's make it smaller and look at the water part of it and then start to realize what we can do if we look at the strategic locations. And when do we need to make it big? Well, we have huge broken watersheds that, are, that have um, systems that are... Um, out of balance, maybe? Out of balance, yes, very yeah. good. thank you for that. That are out of balance. And as one person, we cannot say, okay, let's put a tree there and that's enough. That won't work. We need, we need, um, 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 so we need the dredging companies to actually take soil from one part and put it somewhere else. And it's like, mm -hmm. um, uh, basically reassembling the components of the system. And we have the industry to do that. We have the capability to do that. The capacity is there. I mean, they, are, they have overcapacity at the moment. So, you know, let's use those ships and let's work with that. And if you look at your near shore, I mean, you mentioned it before, there's a lot of eroded material there. It is saline. There are a lot of technical hiccups that need to be looked at. 
uh, but we're working on that with a lot of specialists on our sites. So, you know, it, it's possible. And there are saline farms in Tessel that can actually show that, that you can work with saline uh, uh, soils. And um, so if you have an industry that is able to actually take ground from your own location and put it somewhere else at a scale that you can see from satellites, you know, you can, you can stand on the moon and see what's happening in the world in, 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 in relocating Earth. Um, so we are able to do that. And if you then look at the simple question about where is the water and where should it be, where are the locations that we are leaking water from one location to the other, let's actually make that a strategic location, put our efforts to that, and by doing that with the industry, then you create more moisture and every household can say, hey, this part of the world, I can make my nice garden. I can create life here. I can create biodiversity. I can create a robust system. And if we start doing it in a household manner or enabling them to do that, you know, and then you create the movement, then we can do huge amounts of work. And then there's no, need, there's no reason to leave. And there's no reason to leave. No, I mean, that's I my mean, primary. goes further than that. I mean, then there is abundance and there's enough to share around. And, you know, it, it, we need to start understanding that. I think we do understand, but a lot of people might not. We are living on a living earth. It's one system. So if you're on the other side of the earth, you're still part of the, my system, the same system. Um, so you and I are related. And um, so it's not only my family, it's, it's like we are all related. So we need to share. And it's such, you know, it's, it's, sometimes it feels like, yeah, um, you know, let's take up some of those texts out of the Bible. <laughs> and then I'm like, oh, what do I hear myself say? But it's true. If you, if you reread what is written in all our documents, then, you know, the, we are telling ourselves the story over and over again, but when are we going to see that we need to change and that we're able to do this? And I think this time around, we actually have everything in place. So we need to thank also the, the, the industrial revolution because, because of that, we are able to do this. So, you know, let's really do this together and then we can rebalance it and, give everybody their own responsibility to have their own households thrive. And if you don't keep on sharing and not having the ego too much in place, the sky is the limit. That's a lovely point. I think to wrap this up, we've got a, we've got a few minutes um, for any additional uh, tips or, or messages you might want to share with the listeners. If, if I was, um, I, I'll throw a couple uh, sort of for instances out there. If, if I'm a researcher, for instance, in, in, in an academic setting and I'm, I'm finding this really, really intriguing and I think maybe I've got something to offer the team or to offer the vision, uh, what would be the way to contact you and, and what might I um, imagine being able to, um, how might I imagine my positioning in terms of the relationship to the project? Um, I need to be careful that we're not over, over. Um, Make it provisional. <laughs> <laughs> I think we, um, we need to make a start. So we first need to really have our project and to do that, we need to have local ownership because that's the most important part. Um, um, and make it locally owned. So that's something that we're really putting effort into now to make sure that that happens prior to changing their world. I think that everybody can uh, co-develop within their own settings what they can do. So instead of, uh, you know, we have a lot of, if you feel that you can really bring something to us, you know, go to our website and contact us. No, you know, we, we are open to anybody and everybody. 
but you know yourself if you if you have something that it could really add to this but i think we can all add to it by just looking at looking at our own you know surroundings i mean i've just been planting yesterday um, um, shrubs and trees in my garden that all have eatable fruits on it for for animals and people and I didn't go to the normal big store because they are all modified so they don't work anymore for the natural system so look at ecosystem function and how can I make my own system function more and if that's the way that we all try to look at it then we're, we're going to create value together um, and if we also look at our econo economical system uh, from a functional point of view, that system will change also for the better. So I think everybody can do something with their own expertise by taking function of their ecosystem into account and using it for the, for, for the better, yeah. And so the website is the weather makers, all one word dot nl nl for the netherlands mm -hmm. um and say i'm a young person maybe a digital nomad maybe a student still um interested in exploring them at my possibilities of positive impact uh, maybe i'm part of extinction rebellion or a group which is as focused as that on the survivability of the planet or maybe i'm just starting to realize this is something that's important to me, but not really sure yet how to apply that. Um, would you have advice in terms of useful, maybe useful learning or useful ex experiences? Well, the, the things that inspire us, we share on our inspirational uh, page uh, of our website. So there are documentaries there, interviews there that, that inspired us. Um, and I, I think the world is changing from, you know, looking at ecosystems as being something alternative towards it being a very important social question that everybody wants to do something with. So there's a lot of inspiration out there. Uh, the things that really touched us, we put on our inspirational website and, and we keep on doing that. So that would be a location to look at. Um, and again, try to look as local as possible. Um, uh, look within your own surroundings. And well, we have the rule for ourselves, if you can make it bigger and smaller, it's a natural system. So then go ahead, do your thing if it feels right. If you can't make it bigger and smaller, maybe step away from it. Okay, good advice. I've um, been speaking this morning with Madi Ackerman from the Weathermakers in Den Bosch in the Netherlands about uh, ecosystem functionality and, and how to restore that and regenerate that and a very interesting project that they have launched for the entire Sinai Peninsula in uh, the space between Egypt and Israel. Um, have a look at their website, theweathermakers.nl, and you will find links on that website uh, specifically to the project in the Sinai, but also a lot of uh, other inspirational material. Thank you so much, Mati, for today's conversation. Thank you, Eric. And I look forward to speaking with you again soon. Me too. Thank you for listening to Designers of Paradise. I'm your host, Eric Van Lennep. Join me next week as we bring you another eye-opening interview with the people who are revolutionizing the way we produce our food. Indeed, the people on the front lines of designing paradise. Designers of Paradise is produced by RASA, the Regenerative Agriculture Sector Accelerator. To learn more, go to www.rasa.ag. That's www.rasa.ag. If you have any ideas you'd like to suggest, such as folks we should be talking to or a specific topic we should cover, hit me up with your ideas on Twitter at Greenheart. That's G-R-E-E-N underscore H-E-A-R-T, Greenheart. We'll see you next week.